welcome to Sports Wise, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-director of the Tulane Center for Sport. We're back with the Sports Law Rundown, everything we think you need to know about the latest in sports and the law. I'm joined once again by Eric Blevins, Tulane Sports Law Program Manager, as we break down the latest in college sports, from conference realignment to Jim Harbaugh to Reggie Bush, sports gambling, sports gambling heckling, another brewing international chess controversy, the latest in litigation involving the NFL and Major League Baseball, and our Bram Van Polen update. You give us 22-ish minutes, we'll give you the sports law world. Here we go. Welcome back to the podcast, Eric Blevins. Eric, how you doing? Doing great. Thanks, Gabe. And let's start with conference realignment. We are still waiting to see how everything is going to shake out. The latest news, and this is according to reporting by Ross Dellinger, is that Stanford, Cal, and SMU might still be headed to the AC, that we should have a decision by the end of this week. And the latest is that Stanford and Cal would take a reduced revenue distribution for multiple years, which would start at about 30%, and SMU would take no distribution for as many as seven years in order for them to join the AC and make this palatable to the AC. The AC presidents took a straw vote. They needed 12 of 15 votes for approval, and there were four dissents, FSU, Clemson, North Carolina, North Carolina State. So that didn't pass or they didn't put up to a full vote because they were afraid it wouldn't pass. But apparently, maybe with this new revenue distribution model, the, those three schools may end up in the AC. One interesting note that Brett McMurphy tweeted about is that there's a real incentive for AC to add these three teams because according to the ACC's media rights deal with ESPN, ESPN can renegotiate or lower the revenue they pay if the league drops below 15 members. And with potentially FSU and Clemson, maybe others leaving, it may make sense for the AC to get ahead of it and add these three teams so they don't drop below that 15 and then have to renegotiate a lower deal with ESPN. Related to or more college sports, there is news that a new college players organization has been formed, athletes.org, which right now it's not clear exactly what it's going to be. According to their website, it's a place for athletes to get free legal and medical advice, to talk about things, to potentially vote on things and advocate for improvements. I I don't know what shape that's going to take. We already have something called the National College Players Association. There's a Football Players Association. It's not clear if this is going to have any teeth or any buy-in. They do not seem to want this to be a union. The founder said that college athletes are not employees. So I don't know exactly where this is going to head. It could be that this is one of the groups that's going to try to get a piece of the video game licensing deal. We've talked about the litigation there around EA Sports and Brandar and one team. And I saw a stat the other day that the global video game industry is expected to hit $188 billion in revenue this year. So EA Sports will be a piece of that, but obviously there's a lot there to fight over. One other piece of college news, San Diego State has a unique NIL deal. They have signed up with the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Diego to do some PSAs around fentanyl to promote fentanyl awareness and prevention, 
which is reportedly the first of its kind between San Diego State's collective, which is called MESA, Mentoring and Empowering Student-Athletes, and a Department of Justice. So we'll see if that catches on. I don't know that the Department of Justice has a massive advertising budget for bringing in celebrities, but good for the San Diego State basketball players and other athletes who are going to be able to spread the message of drug awareness. Jumping over to NCAA enforcement, we've got a really interesting lawsuit involving former USC star and current media personality, Reggie Bush, who filed a lawsuit recently suing ESPN for defamation over a comment that they made, not over anything recent, but actually over violations that Bush was involved with back when he was a student and a football player at USC many years ago. And so the comment made was by an NCAA spokesperson who was reflecting or commenting on Bush's past infractions in college and and said that the NCAA rules still do not permit pay-for-play type arrangements. And now Bush says that the pay-for-play type arrangements comment is defamed him because he says that pay-for-play means some sort of improper recruiting inducement or some sort of inducement to try to get you to attend a certain school. And that was not his infraction. Instead, he was punished for alleged improper benefits he received after enrolling at USC. And so based on that distinction, Bush is saying that he was defamed. And it'll be really interesting to see how this one plays out. I think he has a greater chance of re-enrolling at USC and winning another Heisman Trophy than he does of winning this lawsuit. This lawsuit, maybe it's just a PR play. I'm not quite sure. He's also doing quite well in terms of broadcast career. But pay-for-play does not just mean recruiting inducements. You can be paid to play when you're at the school. And the NCAA doesn't give out the Heisman Trophy. And the standards when a defamation case of your public figure is so incredibly high. I just, I'm not quite sure what's going on with this lawsuit. You got an update on the Jim Harbaugh situation. It went from a agreed four game ban with the NCAA to retracting that to no ban. And now we're back on a ban. We've got Michigan has self-imposed a three game ban for Jim Harbaugh this year. And obviously the investigation continues and this isn't a ruling from the NCAA, this is Michigan itself choosing to, to impose this penalty. But you see, we've seen this many times over the years of schools who are under investigation recognize they impose their own punishment, hoping that in the end, the that will factor into the NCAA's ultimate decision. And so along those lines, we've got another one just recently this weekend at Arizona State who self-imposed a bowl ban. And this one is has nothing to do with the current coach, the new coach, Kenny Dillingham. It, it has to do with their prior coach, Herm Edwards, who was hired in 2018 and left in the middle of last season. And this th- these violations are related to allegedly recruits visiting when they weren't supposed to. And the players at Arizona State were just informed this weekend that they will not be able to play for a bowl this year. To Northwestern, which we've talked about frequently on the podcast recently, there is a new lawsuit filed. Now from former baseball staffers alleging that the they were alleging that they suffered retaliatory discharge, harassment, bullying, and abuse by the former head baseball coach Jim Foster. And they alleged that they raised the concerns and then they were demoted and their contracts ultimately were not renewed. The coach Foster was fired this summer on July 
after a Chicago radio reporter, Danny Perkins, reported on the environment in an HR investigation. So more trouble in the Northwestern Athletic Department. We'll keep an eye on that one too. One thing on the Harbaugh suspension or self-suspension, apparently during the Big Ten media days, he said that he thinks that college athletes should get a share of television revenue. So a nice little parting shot before he disappears for three days. The other issue in college sports that despite everything that's going on, really does seem to be at the top of most athletic directors' radars in terms of what they need to be worried about right now. Put aside employment issues, put aside future changes to the compensation model, NIL. The issue that they're really concerned about right now is sports gambling. And as we know, we have legalization of sports gambling by a number of states after the Supreme Court struck down PASPA, which had been the federal ban on sports gambling, legalized sports gambling. We now have 37 states plus DC that have legalized sports gambling. And not surprisingly, we have now seen or there have been allegations of some gambling issues at the collegiate level focused primarily on, on Iowa and Iowa State, but also some with Alabama. And colleges and athletic conferences have reached agreements with sports integrity, sports betting integrity groups to try to help monitor this. And so there are now all the Power Five conferences, or maybe now it's the Power Four, have agreements with U.S. Integrity or Sport Radar to help them make sure that their athletes and their staff are not engaged in sports gambling in violation of NCAA rules and potentially in violation of the law. And there are estimations that the legalized sports wagering market could be as high as $13 billion by 2025. That was originally estimated to be $8 billion just four years ago, but they've had to increase that estimate because gambling has become so popular and so widespread. And that's legalized gambling. There are guesses that the illegal sports gambling market still has about $4 billion in it. And the NCAA and the schools and the conferences are trying everything they can to make sure that the college athletes are not jeopardizing their eligibility or not jeopardizing their careers and are not potentially breaking the law or NCAA rules by either betting on these games or providing inside information to those who want to bet on the games. And our own institution, Tulane, has actually kind of out in front on this and has required all athletic department staff to sign a non-disclosure agreement that says that whether you are a full-time employee or a volunteer with the athletic department, that you agree not to disclose any information relevant to sports betting, whether that's financial, education, medical records, just letting somebody know that, oh, you saw that the starting quarterback was limping or whatever the case may be. So Tulane and Troy Dannon gets credit for this because he's been ahead of the curve on a lot of these issues. But recognizing, one, maybe because of Tulane's history in the 80s with sports gambling, and then also he's from Iowa, so he's seen what's going on in his home state, that they need to take steps on top of what these sports betting monitoring services are doing. So we'll see if other schools follow suit, but good on Troy and good on our Tulane. Another really interesting angle to the whole sports betting ecosystem, but it's the story that came up recently in golf 
at, at a BMW championship recently, apparently a fan yelled while Max Homa was putting. And then later, apparently Homa said, or someone said that the fan that had yelled had made a bet that Homa would miss it. And what are the implications of this? I think it's most prevalent maybe in golf or maybe tennis, where these are concentration-based sports where the fans can yell and throw you off. Maybe baseball even when someone's at bat. But uh, there was an ESPN article that that reported the PGA Tour said there hasn't been, it hasn't really been an issue. This hasn't been an uptick. There's been no uptick in this kind of situation, but it's a fascinating thought experiment at least because what what's what do you think the, uh, the solution there is if that sort of thing becomes a problem? They're just going to be stricter in enforcing the penalties for violating the codes of conduct and everything on the back of the ticket. But I will tell you, I don't know, maybe this is a generational thing, but I have students in my class now who yell at me and heckle when I'm teaching. They've said they've placed a bet on something I'll say. So I can relate to these pro golfers in the PGA Tour. We have another chess story in the news. The Federation announced that they are going to stop allowing transgender women from participating in women's competitions until further analysis can be made, which could take up to two years. Now, FIDE hosts competitions worldwide that allows all players to take part, but they have specialized categories for women, younger people, and even computers, which I wasn't aware of the computer category. So the other divisions are an open division. Anyone can be in that. So transgender women can be in the open division, but they're not going to be allowed to compete in the women's division. This follows on the heels of rowing and cycling and other federations barring trans women from competing in women's competitions. There's been a backlash to FIDE because people wondering, why do you need to put a ban on transgender women, they don't have any physical advantage in playing chess. So why can't they just play in the women's competitions? Just biological women are able to compete in that category. And FIDE said, we're looking at it. But it is a, it seems like a bit of an odd move to take a sport that is not based on physical strength, where there might not be inherent advantages for males versus females, and testosterone might not play the same role. And yet to copy the rules of cycling and what we've seen in other sports where the arguments have been made that the physical advantage does make a huge difference. So more chess news. I don't know that this is where they're going to ultimately land, but it is certainly part of this broader trend of associations, both at the international and domestic level being more restrictive of the ability of transgender women to participate. Shifting to the NFL lawsuit we've talked a lot about on this podcast, had some of the lawyers involved in this, the NFL racial bias lawsuit that was brought by Brian Flores and some other NFL coaches against the NFL, the Giants, the Broncos, and the Texans. The issue we're dealing with right now is whether these cases should be heard in federal court, which is what the plaintiffs want or whether this should be heard in private arbitration, which is what the NFL and the teams want. So far, there's been a split decision. Some of the claims can go to arbitration. Some go to federal court. The NFL and the teams have appealed, saying that they all should be arbitrated, and they have filed now a motion asking for the federal court proceedings to be stayed while the court hears the arbitrability question on appeal. 
the underlying issues of racial discrimination and whether the conduct is illegal is not where we are, just where is the case going to be heard in arbitration or federal court. Another big legal issue that's been simmering for a while is challenge to baseball's longstanding and anomalous antitrust exemption. There have been lawsuits brought by minor league players, by scouts, by a whole host of entities trying to argue that actions and agreements reached by Major League Baseball violate antitrust law. All those cases have been rejected because of the antitrust exemption created by the Supreme Court way back in 1922 and then affirmed two times later. That was then narrowed by the Kirk Flood Act in 1998. There's an interesting argument being made now by minor league baseball players who had argued that their player contract caps their salary or capped their salary at less than $15,000 a season. And that's illegal under antitrust law and that it's unfair and illegal that the minor league baseball players are subject to a cap when the major league baseball players are not. And so they're arguing here, not just on the antitrust merits, but they're arguing that the Sherman Act, the antitrust laws, and the Curt Flood Act are unconstitutional and that they violate equal protection clause because they are treating major league baseball players different than minor league baseball players and that there is no legitimate justification for that. I give points to creativity to the lawyers for this one. We'll see if there is any success, but it is part of one of many attempts to overturn the Curt Flood Act and eliminate the baseball exemption entirely. One more quick, interesting pro sports legal issue. James Harden made a lot of headlines when he said as part of a tour that Daryl Morey, the president general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, is a liar and I will never be a part of an organization that he's a part of. Let me say that again. Daryl Morey is a liar and I will never be part of an organization that he's a part of. Just to be clear, that's James Harden saying that. That's not me saying that. That's me quoting James Harden. I don't have any reason to believe that Daryl Daryl Morey is a liar or is not a liar. But that was James Harden's comment. The NBA has fined him $100,000 based on a memo they had sent out that said that any player or agent who makes public or private comments indicating he won't fully perform the services called for under his contract player in the event of a trade, will be subject to discipline. This is that discipline. The Players Association has filed a grievance saying that he wasn't demanding a trade, that this didn't violate the NBA rules, and we will see how all of this plays out, and we'll see where James Harden ends up playing. But it's not pretty if you were a Sixers fan. A new story in a very old case just popped up very recently in the world of professional fighting. The the antitrust case against the UFC, which was filed way back in 2014, the district court just ruled granting class certification in that lawsuit, which is a really significant step in, in this litigation that's been simmering for quite a while. And, and just on Wednesday, the USC filed a petition with the Ninth Circuit to appeal that class certification. So just the really quick background, this is essentially a classic Section 2 Sherman Act claim. The fighters are saying that the UFC has monopsony power, and because they're so dominant, they've used that power to suppress fighter pay. So this lawsuit and this class certification is just over the the pay for the fights themselves. The judge declined to certify a class over 
licensing rights, which they'd also requested. And so the UFC pushes back and they say the class doesn't make sense for a variety of reasons, but one of them is because they say that there's a huge disparity between the pay that some fighters receive. For example, a fighter like Conor McGregor with this has a very significant deal that does make, relatively speaking, a lot of money, just doesn't belong in a class with some of the more average or run-of-the-mill fighters who are making more of their minimum amounts. So this one's been going on for a long time, but really a major milestone and another significant fight, excuse nice. the pun, nice. coming up coming up here in the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, and one of the, one of the issues that the UFC has argued is that the plaintiffs are they're asked for $1.6 billion in damages, which would be trebled to $4.8 billion in damages. And the theory, part of the antitrust theory that the plaintiffs have is that the player salaries and the player pay, I should say, has not kept up with growth and revenues that UFC has experienced. And UFC has argued that can't be a legal theory. You can't make it so that anyone can bring an antitrust claim from the labor side if their salaries are not rising as high as the revenues in that industry. And as you said, that the class shouldn't be certified. So th- these are lawsuits, these antitrust lawsuits, where if you look at the number that they're seeking in damages and then you treble it, as we do under antitrust law, they are potentially industry-crushing lawsuits. The NFL faced this from the USFL back in the day. And Part of the reason why these class cert battles are so important, because if the class is certified, then you really do have to face that, whether it's a billion dollars or half a billion dollars, still massive amount, as opposed to facing an individual plaintiff that is going to be entitled to maybe relatively significant money, but pales in comparison to the class of over a thousand fighters who are who would be in this class. Popping back over to the NBA real quick, one more pretty interesting lawsuit that just came up, I think last week. The New York Knicks, your New York Knicks, have sued the Toronto Raptors and some of the Raptors staff over allegedly a former Knicks staffer leaving for the Raptors and taking with him a bunch of confidential proprietary information. And per ESPN, this former Knicks employee took thousands of files from the Knicks or sources that the Knicks use, including play frequency reports, a prep book for the season, video scouting files, opposition research, and more. And so the complaint names the new Raptors head coach, Darko Ryakovich, as a defendant, along with some some other Raptors staff members. The Raptors haven't answered the lawsuit yet, but they did issue a statement strongly denying the claims. They said they had received a letter from MSG, but they weren't aware a lawsuit was being filed. But they did say that, quote, the company strongly denies any involvement in the matters alleged. I think we'll find out a lot more when they file that answer. Oh, that, that clears it up. They strongly denied it. I guess that the case is over. I also, it's just odd to me that as a lifelong Knicks fan, the allegation that somebody is stealing secrets from the Knicks to bring to another NBA team. That's like Subway stealing their recipes and bringing them to French Laundry. Like, I don't see hey now. Hey now. what the incentive, I, what are you saying that the Subway criticism or the French Laundry? Yeah. I don't, are you saying the Raptors are the French Laundry? I don't know. I'm just no. saying that the Knicks are the subway. Yeah, yeah. It's a, this is, that's a criticism of the Knicks, not a commentary on the Raptors or French Laundry. Got it. Uh, one last update, the Panini Fanatics lawsuit we've talked about, which 
could dictate who's going to control the sports card industry going forward. The NFL Players Association announced on August 21st that they were terminating their deal with Panini, which was set to run until 2026. And instead, they were going to start with Fanatics three years early, which would seemingly give Fanatics now not only the NBA and the NHL, but also NFL trading cards. And Panini has already started making the cards since the NFL season is about to start. So it's unclear what's going to happen to those Panini cards and if they're able to sell them or not, or that these become weirdly collector's items that might be more valuable than any other cards that have been made before, because we know it's going to be the last Panini NFL set ever made, or at least ever made until they get, unless they get the, the rights back. But the, there's just things have happened so quickly with trading cards and fanatics is just, again, continuing to exert its dominance over these multiple fields and so much dominance that others have claimed that they have violated antitrust law through their dominance. We'll see what happens there, but at least for now, it looks like they will get, or they have gotten now earlier access to the NFL and the NFL Players Association than we thought they would. Wrapping up, as we always do in the Bram Van Polen corner, and I have an exciting update. I found out recently from a friend that we've been pronouncing it wrong. The correct pronunciation of Bram's team is Pexwall. So we got that cover going forward. All right. So our fearless leader, Bram Van Polen, played 90 minutes this weekend in an exciting 1-0 win over Utrecht. So now Pexwall is up to 14th in the table. They're out of the relegation places. Optimistic that we can stay up in the first division after this season. What about, what are you thinking? First of all, it's, there's three games into the season, so it might be a little early to look at the relegation spots. And this is their first win of the season. The comments that people have made about the Jets, just based on hard knocks, I think, I don't think we're getting ahead of our, ourselves talking about the actual regular season here. That's fair. I guess is Aaron Rodgers the Bram Van Polen of the NFL? Oh, but the, the thing is, Bram is retiring at the end of the year. So true. Whether they get relegated or not, this is the end of the Bram Van Polen corner. This is our it swan. Is. This is our victory tour. Unless he stays on as a coach, as a Roy Kent. It's but, like the, the Derek Jeter farewell farewell tour. Yeah, exactly. With maybe a little less fanfare. A little, depending on whether you listen to the podcast or not. On that note, <laughs> thank you for listening to the podcast everybody. And thank you as always to our sponsor, the Tulane Center for Sport. Eric, thank you again for joining. And we will see you next time on SportsWise.